When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode is about a young woman cursed with a very deadly conundrum. Her life was perfect. She was wealthy, pretty and married to a good man. But discovering that she was pregnant, either this terrified lady would endanger her tiny body to adhere to the law, or risk her life to end it all. Murder Mile is researched using the original police files. It contains moments with satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds. So that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, You'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael. I am your tour guide. This is Murder Mile. Episode 95. Elsie Goldsmith and the Parasite Inside. Today, I'm standing on Upper Brook Street in Mayfair, W1 three roads west of the senseless stabbing of Sedu Divasuba, four roads north of Roberto Troyan's greedy accountant, 300 feet from the assassination of Alexander Litvinenko, and a short walk from the home of Joseph King, who slaughtered his entire family over a debt of just a few shillings. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Mayfair is a posh part of West London, bordered by Hyde Park, Green Park, Piccadilly and Soho, which is home to many famous hotels, galleries, institutions and embassies. Whereas this part of Mayfair is so posh, there is literally no dog shit on the streets. I know, amazing. But wealth can't buy you style. The only businesses you'll see here are tailors for tacky oil barons who will waste a king's ransom on a shiny gold suit, a showroom for thicky footballers who blow millions on a hypercar only to wrap it around a lamppost, art galleries so pretentious you'll often see critics applauding the bin, a surgery for ancient heiresses 
who've had so many facelifts that when they blink, their arse cheeks wiggle. And restaurants by celebrity chefs, which are only open for the finest shysters, dictators and celebrity pedos. But locked to brummy scum like me, as with alarms wailing, the posh police boot me out, scrub me with bleach and tattoo the words unclean on my forehead for fear that I may infect their beloved money. Before the construction of the former US Embassy, at the west end of Grosvenor Square stood a three-story 18th-century townhouse at 55 up Brook Street, which was sadly destroyed in the Blitz. As an elegant home for many lords and ladies, it was the epitome of high society and sophistication. And yet it wasn't the bombs which took this young lady's life, but an accident, a lack of education, and an unjust law. As it was here, on Thursday the 21st of November 1927, in the back room of a well-respected abortionist, that Elsie Goldsmith went to have her little problem erased. Only the life he destroyed was hers. Elsie was raised in a world of great privilege and wealth, but also fear and ignorance. Elsie Goldsmith was born Elsie Alex Folks on the 5th of March 1906 in the district of Missouri, India. An affluent town at the foothills of the Himalayan mountains, blessed with lush green valleys, stunning waterfalls, and the dawn rise shadowed by the snow-capped peaks of Kathmandu and Mount Everest. With India firmly under the tyrannical boot of the British Empire, throughout the 19th and half of the 20th century, the British government ruled every aspect of this country, denying its people a say in how their lives were run. And Missouri was no exception. But Alice wouldn't know this, as she was only a baby. Dotted with ancient huts and stunning temples, the British imposed their own stamp on this foreign land by bulldozing the bits they didn't like and fashioning themselves a home from home, filled with roads, a railway, and even a seven-star Savoy Hotel, where they played cricket on the lawn, drank tea at Elevenses, and signified lunch by cannon fire. With all of the signs in English, churches singing Christian hymns, and in this mostly Hindu region, they lived on a deeply offensive diet of eggs, milk, beef, and alcohol. Missouri was incredibly wealthy, but only if you were white and British. And yet Alice wouldn't know this, as this young lady was shielded from the unpleasant truth, as she would be for the rest of her life. As the smallest and youngest of four siblings, with her father as a high-ranking official in the British military, and her mother aided by a mass of maids and butlers, living in a palatial colonial-style home behind large iron gates, she was mistakenly raised to believe that her opulent cocoon would protect her from harm. And yet, it wouldn't prepare her for the worst. 
1910, following her father's death, the family moved back to Britain and settled into a three-story home at 18 Wilbury Gardens in Hove, near the English south coast. Being an independently wealthy widower, Florence gave her daughter the best education, which at that time was in a convent. Raised to be a lady, it was deemed improper for her to ever discuss love, sex, or even her own body. So from childhood, right through her teenage years, Elsie received no sex education at school or at home. Tutored by celibate nuns in a Catholic convent, this highly strung and sensitive girl was riddled with guilt and force-fed cruel tales of Eve's sin. As with no understanding that her periods were perfectly natural, each month she bled red, Elsie wept terrified tears and blamed herself for defying God. By 1927, age 21, being a small-framed virgin with tiny hips, as her only chance of happiness was to marry a man and to bear his babies, Elsie was petrified of childbirth, especially as living in an era where only a quarter of children survived to the age of five, and their mothers, especially those whose bodies weren't built to be stretched, torn and ripped, frequently died in childbirth. On the 20th of June 1927, after a short courtship, Elsie got engaged to 41-year-old Valentine Harry Goldsmith, the son to an affluent family, former paymaster commander for the Royal Navy, and now assistant controller of the newly formed British Broadcasting Corporation. On the 8th of September, they married at St. Simon's Church in Kensington, and still remaining true to her faith and her God. During their three-week honeymoon in Paris and the French Riviera, Elsie had sex for the first time and became pregnant. Ten weeks later, barely showing a bump and being almost six months from childbirth, the terrified newlywed was forced to make a drastic decision which would prove fatal for her baby and herself. A wonderful moment in many women's lives is the discovery that they are pregnant. But for Elsie, the news was met with absolute terror. As in her eyes, this little blessing could be a death sentence. Outside of statistics, medically, there was no evidence that she was in an abnormal amount of danger. Being wealthy, with access to fresh food, clean water, and the best doctor her money could buy. Although small and slight, she was also young and healthy. But her irrational fear of childbirth had been stoked by years of guilt. Shortly after their honeymoon, Elsie confided to her husband that she was late. Its meaning flew over his head as although twice her age, Valentine was little more than a posh military man with next to no experience of a woman's anatomy. But seeing the fear well in her eyes, 
and hearing the words baby tremble on her tongue, it was clear that Elsie was petrified. A few days later, seeing blood spots in her knickers, Elsie breathed a sigh of relief and put her delay down to getting a chill while taking a bath. And although this was an old wives' tale, it reassured her. By the end of October, with her period late and again seeing spots, her fear dispersed. Only this time, as the blood was accompanied by an itchy rash around her vagina and anus, the doctor diagnosed her with threadworm, a tiny parasite ingested by eating infected pork and easily cleared up with a mild enema. But having missed a second period, the terror of impending childbirth left her in a deadly quandary. As abortions were illegal, being forced to go full term if she went into a hospital, this tiny lady risked injury, disability and even death owing to tearing, ruptures, infection, shock and broken bones. Whereas if she tried to induce a miscarriage herself, by falling downstairs, drinking turpentine, swallowing poison, overdosing on laxatives, or by procuring a backstreet abortion, where an unnamed man of dubious qualifications sluices out the womb with disinfectant, fishes out the fetus with a wire scraper, and flushes it away. Every option to terminate her pregnancy risked her health and possibly her life. Elsie was terrified. She didn't want to have a baby, and she didn't want to die. By the first week of November, Elsie was advised to visit a specialist at 55 Upper Brook Street in Mayfair. His name was Charles Palmer, but he wasn't a doctor. Charles Jackson Palmer was born in 1868 in the Irish city of Cork. As with an English father and a Welsh mother, his confusing identity would follow him for the rest of his life. Raised in the middle-class English suburb of Edgbaston to two working-class grocers who had strived to give their boys a better life than they had been handed. As the youngest, John studied the exciting new science of electrical engineering and Charles studied medicine at Birmingham Medical School. Fueled by a need to exceed his parents' wildest dreams, Charles aspired to be a wealthy, respected doctor who was accepted by the cream of London's high society. But as a Welsh-Irish Brummie, even though he had adopted a plummy voice, a bow tie, a nice suit and a cane to try and fit in, his success would always be an uphill struggle as academically, he was not gifted. After 14 years of private education, with three years studying biology in Birmingham, four years of anatomy at University College, and supposedly an apprenticeship under Sir Alfred Fripp, chief surgeon to the king, Charles never gained a medical degree, and therefore, he never became a doctor. But that didn't limit his ambitions. 
fascinated by modern technology and utilizing his brother's wizardry of circuitry, in 1903, he set up his own medical practice, treating all manner of ailments using the wonder drug of the age, electricity. Known as vibromassage, this revolutionary technique could cure everything from nerves, back pain, headaches, and muscle strain. Using a set of electrodes, a treatment table, and a steady current. In 1907, he was so respected amongst the upper classes that having acquired such affluent clients as the Duke of Argyle, the Duke of Grafton, the Duchess of Devonshire, and Lady Lonsdale, he moved into a larger premises in St. James's and later to the more exclusive 55 Upper Brook Street in Mayfair. So legitimate were his credentials that although he was unqualified, in 1921, London County Council issued him with a license. But his desire to carry favour with the society elite would be his undoing. In March 1926, the Countess of Canoole discovered that she was pregnant and in need of a discreet professional with a non-invasive solution to her little problem. Electricity was a miracle. It could cure as much as it could kill. And although Charles wasn't keen on this kind of thing, he agreed to help her. A few weeks later, Countess Kinnall miscarried. She was unharmed. And Charles Palmer unwittingly became the secret abortionist to the London elite. One of whom would be Elsie Goldsmith. By November 1927, with her second period absent, her third period late, and her tiny body deformed by a barely noticeable bump, unlike the threadworms, a very different kind of parasite was growing inside Elsie's womb, sucking her fluids, distorting her organs, and making her vomit. There was no cure, only nine months of agony, capped off with an excruciating torture, which she might not survive. Elsie was almost three months pregnant, but not a single day of it had been a blessing. Every day she wept, every night she spent awake, every moment she asked God, given that she hadn't sinned, why he was punishing her. And although she was still only young, the stress had aged her. Being absolutely terrified, Elsie just wanted this thing out of her body right now. But the law had said no. So when a close friend recommended a medical specialist who used no cutting, no scraping, no poisons and no risk of infection, just a new revolutionary technique which gently stimulated the womb's muscles to induce a very natural miscarriage. Elsie saw this as a ray of hope. And seeing his wife's distress, Valentine wanted what was best for her. Her first appointment was on the 8th of November at 9pm. Elsie was escorted by her husband, 
as he wanted to get a measure of the man and his machine. But any doubts he had were very quickly dismissed. Situated just shy of the corner of Grosvenor Square, 55 Upper Brook Street was a neat, clean and well-presented townhouse in the heart of a very exclusive part of Mayfair. As their taxi pulled up and the black front door opened, the goldsmiths were greeted by Charles's butler and offered a cup of Earl Grey tea by Charles's maid as they sat holding hands in the stylish grand floor reception. At 9pm precisely, Charles Palmer, a dapper man in his late 50s, dressed in a tailored suit, a smart bow tie, small round glasses, and confidently speaking in an educated and affluent tombra, he explained his equipment, answered their questions, and reassured Mr. and Mrs. Goldsmith that after 24 years as a medical electrician, who was fully licensed by London County Council, that his services would be safe, private, and discreet. As Valentine was satisfied, Elsie felt comfortable, and Charles was available, having sent her husband home, as she preferred to discuss such delicate matters without him present. Elsie Goldsmith had her first treatment that night. Being back home at 44 Gordon Square, she was smiling, she was tired. She was unsure if it had worked, as she only felt a mild tingling. But she had already begun to look and feel a little brighter. She attended her second appointment on the 11th of November, a third on the 14th, with three further sessions booked for the 16th, the 18th and the 21st. The course would last several weeks, but by the end of her sixth appointment, Elsie would be dead. Monday the 21st of November 1927 was a very ordinary day. The sky was a gloomy grey, the air was soaked with an incessant drizzle, and a gritty bitter wind howled around 44 Gordon Square. Inside, Elsie sat by a roaring fire, fitfully dozing in short interrupted bursts, as having barely slept in weeks, her heart thumped, her nerves surged, and her little body lay slumped in the chair, all limp and lethargic. Ten weeks in, not knowing whether she was pregnant was worse than actually knowing. But with this thing still being too small, she had yet to feel the horror as it writhed and slithered inside her. In her mind, having sucked her energy dry, the parasite had grown and the swelling was proving harder to hide. So even in her own home, for fear that her staff may gossip about her immoral deeds, she had to conceal her shame under several thick dark layers. Except the darkness of her disguise only accentuated her ghostly pale face and her red raw eyes. At 6pm, arriving at 55 Upper Brook Street, Elsie was greeted by the familiar smile of Charles's butler. She was welcomed in with a curtsy from Charles's maid, ushered into the consulting room, and as always, 
She was assessed by a specialist, who had a calm voice, a caring tone, and a reassuring bedside manner. As she had done five times prior, behind a modesty screen, Elsie disrobed, placing each garment neatly folded onto a chair. To allow the treatment to be unimpeded, she removed her corset, suspenders and silk knickers. But to keep her dignity intact, she kept on her dress, a vest and knee-high stockings. Only once she was comfortable, Elsie announced that she was ready. Charles re-entered the consulting room and gently guided his patient onto the treatment table. To the far side, away from the drawn blinds, stood a large stainless steel table, six feet long by three feet wide and high, which brightly gleamed as it was pristine clean. At the top was a soft white padding for her head, with the same at the base for her feet. And as Elsie lay herself face up on the table, she winced as the cold metal touched her bare skin, for which Charles apologized and they both giggled. The process was simple and painless. Wired up to the main supply of the skirting board, a small engine powered four small motors on the corners of the table, each fitted with variable resistors, which fed a constant electrical flow to the patient's skin via padded electrodes and sterilized rods, stimulating her nerves and heating her muscles over a period of 30 minutes. And although the mains outlet gave a deadly charge of 200 volts, through its intricate circuitry, the appliance reduced this to a consistent flow of just 20 ohms, resulting in a mild vibration, a pleasant warmth, and a tingling sensation. It was very successful in treating muscular pain, but for abortions, it needed to be more invasive. As before, Elsie had padded electrodes placed on her temples, with one on her spine, and having first injected a soapy solution into the wall of her uterus to aid the miscarriage. A sterilized stainless steel electrode, shaped like a five-inch rod, was inserted deep into her vagina, millimeters from the fetus. Having placed a bath towel over her lower half, the treatment began at a little after 6.30, and as the tingling would last roughly 30 minutes, Elsie distracted herself with pleasant thoughts. For Charles, it was key to keep his equipment in good condition. But being keen to carry favour with those well-to-do ladies who preferred to be treated in the privacy of their own homes, often his kit was dismantled transported and reassembled again and again and again. At 7pm, with the session coming to an end, Elsie complained of a cramp in her stomach. Beads of sweat had formed on her forehead and her breathing was short and erratic. Before Charles could react, abruptly, her fists clenched tight and white, 
As with almost superhuman strength, this tiny lethargic lady sat bolt upright, fast and unaided, like she was possessed. With her back arched, her face contorted, and her whole body convulsing, as a thick white froth foamed around her screaming lips. For several painful seconds, as a resistor had blown, Elsie was rocked by the full flow of 200 volts of electricity, until the circuit popped and she slumped back onto the cold steel table. Having been electrocuted, she was barely breathing, barely conscious, and barely alive. Charles Palmer panicked. He didn't have a nurse. He wasn't a qualified doctor. And even after 14 years of medical school, he didn't know what to do. So having wafted some smelling salts under her nose and administered a very antiquated version of CPR, which involved raising her arms above her head and bringing them down to her sides. After 15 minutes of flapping, he called for a proper doctor. But by then, Elsie and her baby were dead. But Charles Palmer was less concerned about her than he was about his reputation. So as he wasted the next three hours trying to coerce a doctor to sign off her death as natural causes, by her side, stroking her hand and kissing her cooling cheek, sat Valentine, copiously weeping over the woman he had just wed. At 10 p.m., the police were finally notified. Seeing the electrical device, his treatment table, and a full abortionist toolkit, as well as a small pale body, marked with a series of telltale signs, like bruises to her thighs, burns to her temple, and a white soapy liquid which frothed and bubbled from her scorched genitals. Mayfair's most prominent medical electrician was arrested and charged with the death of Elsie Goldsmith. At a five-day trial held at the Old Bailey on the 31st of January 1928, Charles Jackson Palmer was found guilty of manslaughter and unlawfully using an instrument to procure an abortion. He was sentenced to seven years penal servitude and he died a few years after his release. Of course, everyone blamed the abortionist. Some blamed his equipment and whereas others blamed Elsie. And whereas even though she was entirely innocent, the real culprits were never caught or brought to justice. Elsie Goldsmith was a young girl, raised in an era where any talk of sex was silenced, in a family where body matters were taboo, in a religion where a woman's reproductive organs were both praised and shamed, all wrapped up in a legal system which forced a good woman to make a deadly decision to terminate not only the life of her unborn baby, but also herself having been given the right to create life, but with no decision of how, when or if she should end it.
Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. After the break, I'm going to do my usual thing. Waffle a bit, slurp a bit, maybe breathe, have a sit down, chat about coots, and do some talking for roughly half an hour. Ooh, exciting. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Cat Lady Christina, Rebecca Latham, and Liz Hand. I thank you all. As well as a special thank you to Vlada Beaumont for your very kind donation. I thank you. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. Oh, that was long. Oh. Oh, hello, everyone. Extra, extra mile time. Yay, we're here. We made it. Oh, Although you're at this bit now and you're like, oh, I've still got three days of editing to do before you get to the bit that you've just heard. Oh, dear. That was a race to the finish, that was. I'm going to open some windows quickly. A race to the finish, because um, I, I got up nice and early to try and get this done before uh, before everyone wakes up, before boats start going past. Uh, unfortunately, all the birds are awake, so they're making all their twittery noises. Uh, my neighbour, who's doing some repairs. So... Uh, I was trying to get all this done before he gets his grinder on. Not grinder as in his sexy app. His grinder as in his metal grinder. 
I wanted to get all that done before he wakes up and does his thing, which is fine. Uh, and I was working my way through this, trying to get it all done. And then, because, because I'm next to a big field, and it's all very overgrown, now that the lockdown is being eased, not quit, not finished, eased. I have to remind everyone it's being eased. It's not over, it's eased. Uh, they decide to mow the lawn and uh, there's a big tractor out there now. It's just buggered off a bit, so I had to race through that end bit. I raced through it and then he buggered off, so I redid part of the end section and oh, Whew, right. Putting my tea on. Put my tea on, gonna open up a window or two. Oh, dear, that's about... Oh, but you can't beat a bit of cold air. Over the window. I've got a fire, al fire alarm that's playing up as well. So halfway through that, it was going beep, 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 beep. Time to check the batteries. Always good to have that warning. Right. Oh, right. Cup of tea time. Tea, milk. Can't have, uh, can't have proper milk anymore because the proper milk is too hot. It's really blisteringly hot. Um, I bought some tea, some milk the other day. I literally put it into the boat and then I sat down and I was like, oh, I'll go and have me tea. And then it had already, it had already turned into kind of a big yogurt. It was horrible. It's hot here. It's bloody hot. I think it's like 28 degrees or something, which is too hot. I don't like that. Yeah. So back on the powdered milk, which is fine. It does the beers, which, but that also means no cheese, no cheese, oh, no ice cream although I've been good I used to pig out on ice cream a lot hence I got very very fat I've I think since last October I think I've only had one pot of ice cream I think which is a miracle for me because I normally like I have a couple of I have like a big pot every weekend big pot oh right um oh look cake o'clock I saved this I bought this two days ago it's a Belgian bun from Tesco's well I've saved one of them and I was actually good. I actually saved it. It's looking a bit sweaty, but I'm still going to bloody eat it. Mmm, yum. Right. Uh, what's going on here? Uh, we've been given our marching orders, all the boaty people. Uh, we're meant to be moving this weekend, which is kind of mm, 23rd of uh, May. But they've said the waterways isn't fully open until the 1st, which is a bit stupid. And then they said, but we've definitely got to be moved by the 6th which is ridiculous because it's, oh, I think a lot of us are saying, you know, let's move if we if we need to move. But you know what? Us moving, it doesn't help the economy. All it does is increase the viruses because obviously we've got to get through locks and you've got to, it's a physical job. Do you know, you've got to move things. It'd be better if we just sat down until the virus is gone. Do you know, it's, there's no reason for us to move, but unfortunately they're insisting that we go back to our old ways, which slightly buggered up me because I'm normally in a diff entirely different part of the city by now. I have a route that I do and where I am, I need to be back here in winter. So it's like, I, I can't work out what, what I do now, where I go, but there we go. Uh, but the good thing is with the, with the uh, lockdown being eased, I'm repeating the word eased, not over eased it's eased we're still on the restrictions people adhere to the rules two meters everyone two meters keep you to people are, i think people have forgotten already 
I, I see people without masks. I see people without gloves. I see people not sanitizing their hands before they pick up trolleys or baskets. Uh, they're all in groups around the supermarkets. Everyone's going, oh, let's get all of our hundred children together and we'll all go out together. And people just people have just forgotten. And we're due uh, the second. I'm sorry to talk about the virus. Uh, we're due, uh, according to uh, NHS and all the proper professionals, not not the idiots that we have as politicians we're due the the uh second wave in july and it will be a big one because people are just being really lax at the moment so for those of you being good and staying hunkered down you're going to be fine for all the idiots who are going out and going to beaches and stuff like that you're going to spread the virus to uh your relatives and it's not going to be good for you sorry about that but you know we need to hunker down we this is not it's it's they're easing the rules that they, they haven't dropped the rules Oh, dear Lord, dear Lord, people, people. Oh, anyway, let's let's forget about that shite. Uh, how's it? Oh, this case, right. Yep, uh, this case was one of those ones I found in the archives. Again, another one I didn't know about. Uh, I saw the date, I saw the place, I saw a name, didn't recognise the names at all. Picked it up, started reading. I thought to myself, oh, no, it's an, another abortion one. I'd kind of done an abortion one with a hairy, a hairy Helen Mary Pickwood one. I think that's like episode 36 or 38, something around that area. It's not too far away. It's actually only around two or three roads away from this, this one. Uh, but when I started reading it, I, I realised it was quite interesting. It was a different perspective because the other one, Helen Mary Pickwood's one, if you remember it, it, that was a backstreet abortion in a hotel. She died of... Do you know, it's like over a period of days, it was a really bad kind of it was sepsis and it was affection, do you know, really horrific. Whereas this is an entirely different side to it. And I thought actually it'd be interesting to show that it's not it's not it's not a poor people, it's not a rich person thing. Do you know, hers was a bungling doctor who abortionist who didn't know what he was doing. This again is a bungling one because it was unregulated. People were doing it themselves. And this is kind of a, a different side to it as well. So I thought this could be an interesting one to show. Uh, also, she, you know, she's incredibly posh, incredibly wealthy. And you'd probably think to yourself, well, you know, she's posh and wealthy. She can afford the best doctors. But don't forget, this is an era where abortions are illegal. She didn't have the rights to choose what to do with her own body. So uh, unfortunately, she had to take the drastic step of uh, going to someone who friends had recommended. It had been successful before it had failed that time. You know, he said he had he said he'd never had a failure. It never failed. But th that time it had tea time. Oh, let that stew a bit. hope that i don't forget my tea i tell you what let's do my we'll do the questions and then by the time i've read out the questions the tea should be stewed right get ready for your questions here we go here we go were you listening oh, time to check don't forget as always uh the questions all are in there but i haven't edited the episode yet so could be a chance that i i uh, the questions may not relate to anything that's in there because i may have edited it out or I may accidentally balls it up in the next bit by mentioning it in the, uh, the when we go through. Uh, oh, I can't think anymore. Uh, when we go through uh, the rest of extra mile, all, all the additional bits. So, question number one: What was Elsie's maiden name? Mm -hmm. Briefly mentioned that at the start. So she, before she became a goldsmith, what was her maiden name? 
Question number two. Where did Valentine Goldsmith work? Mm, briefly mentioned earlier on. Question number three. Where did Elsie and Valentine go on honeymoon? Uh, it was a three-week honeymoon and they went to two different places. Where was it? Uh, question number four. Which mountain formed part of Elsie's sunrise when she was growing up? Question number five. Uh, 55 Upper Brook Street was demolished after World War Two, But what, until recently, stood in its place? Mm. I've actually got some footage online, so I'll put that on my website and things like that. I've, I, I managed to find some footage of uh, 55 Upper Brook Street just after it was demolished. Uh, so I'll put that footage online so you can see roughly what it looks like. But I've also taken some pictures of 53 upper brook street because 54 was demolished as well and that's a very similar building so I'll, I'll post that online as well uh question six where was charles palmer born question seven where did valentine and el oh burpee where did val where did valentine and elsie live i mentioned the address twice i think uh, uh question eight what age were Valentine and Elsie? Mm, also mentioned. Question nine. In Missouri, India, where Elsie was born, the British built a road, a railway, and what else? Classic British. Question ten. Who issued Charles Jackson with a license, even though he was unqualified? Classic. Right, my tea should almost be stewed by now. So let's have a look. Let's see how that will do me for now. Yes. Whoa, hot, hot, hot. It's looking pretty hot outside. And and as classic would be the uh, tractor, isn't there? The tractor literally turned up for a second, didn't put his thingies down. He's, I think it, maybe he was just assessing the, the ground to see what it looked like. But he's, he's buggered off. So, <sighs> right. Uh, okay, let's, let's go through some uh, things that uh, probably didn't make it into the story. Because as always, you know, I'll give you the backstory and we get up to the point of the murder. But I always feel that unless there's a big escape in it, like with... Um, the, the Charlotte Street robbery, Joe, you know, the, the aftermath of that was quite interesting. But quite often, how people escape really isn't that interesting from murder, uh, how they were caught. Oh, except in uh, the, uh, the, uh, the one, uh, the, the Patrick Marne one, the one in Brighton where he cut up his, uh, he cut up his uh, mistress and try, tried to burn her body in the, uh, the fire and the, uh, the boiler body on the, on the, my brain is gone boiler body on the stove and they threw bits of her body out of the train that's interesting but most of the time it's not interesting so i kind of remove it but um so just after he had uh electrocuted uh elsie goldsmith uh, uh, uh charles palmer calls valentine at the office where he worked not giving away where he worked he said your wife is very ill come at once valentine came in a cab when he arrived palmer said i'm very sorry my dear fellow she is ill valentine 
asked if she was dead, Palmer nodded his head. She was lying on the couch, uh, a napkin over her face, dead, but she was still warm. That was nice of him, wasn't it, to go, uh, to go, oh, your, your, your wife's very ill, old pal, what, what? Uh, and she wasn't ill, she was bloody dead. Um... Palmer said, I was giving her treatment when suddenly she sat up and clenched her fists and it was all over. I have given treatment for years and I have never had an accident. He keeps doing this. And oddly in his story, he keeps changing the story quite a lot. So I've kind of written what is nearer to the official version. But there is about four different versions in there. And he doesn't make it easier because he's constantly trying to cover his own arse. Um, Palmer appeared very agitated. Valentine said, is she really gone? can't you do anything um palmer said i've been trying i've tried everything i've even sent i've sent for a doctor uh valentine said they never discussed the possibility of an illegal abortion in fact he thought her periods were okay again what quite what what valentine knew about all this we don't really know because we can only take his his version and elsie's version but given the fact that this was nearer where kind of you know wife and husband probably wouldn't discuss her her body functions uh it probably didn't yeah maybe he didn't we don't we don't know we don't know um uh police arrived at 10 p.m uh dr robert reynolds mackintosh of number 9a upper brook street so just up the road uh called Mark great marlborough street police station uh, and to say there was a sudden death of Elsie Goldsmith, which had occurred at 55 Upper Brook Street. Inspector Kersons arrived. Elsie was lying on the couch. Uh, it was kind of a floral couch with dropped ends. All these interesting details that I love. <laughs> uh, in the consulting rooms, uh, she was wearing a black frock, grey bloomers, light stockings, black shoes, a small towel covering her face. Her fur coat, woolen pullover, hat were lying on the chair. Uh, next to her and on the back of her seat were a pink coloured corset band and her suspenders Uh, Palmer had said that Elsie had called for an appointment at 6pm she was having an electrical treatment for a nervous disorder he also would later claim uh, that she uh, was there only because she uh, she had anemia Uh, and she she was very pale she was very anemic um, he said that he tried artificial respiration, which I think I mentioned in this was really the pathetic Victorian version where you raise the person's arms above their head uh, and then you drop it down to their sides. That was their version. And it was not successful. Uh, Palmer tried several attempts to find a doctor nearby. Obviously, he found Dr. McIntosh. Uh, he also had a Dr. Playfair and Dr. Marne who were nearby, but both were ill at the time. He was having a bit of a rush round. Uh Dr. McIntosh turned up, tried artificial respiration, no joy. He injected her with one-tenth of a grain of strychnine. Uh, Obviously, we now use that for rat poison, but in that era, they believed that strychnine was, you know, another wonder drug that could be used for pretty much everything. So in that era, you'll see a lot of of doctors uh, with strychnine, but it's uh, um, obviously we we only use it for... um, uh, death thing death related things uh what else we got what else we got oh upon arriving palmer said to mac uh doc the doctor i'm in great trouble i was given electrical treatment to a woman when suddenly she died uh what else we got uh 
yep, doctor arrived and saw that she she had burns to her left uh, femoral region. Uh, uh, Palmer said it must have been caused by a hot hot water bottle. Yep, whatever. Uh, Palmer worried that he'd just moved into these new premises and most of his clients were high society, hunting types and what what. And publicity could ruin him. Doctor said if you doctor said if he wanted to avoid publicity to get her doctor to confirm that there were reasonable grounds for health um uh he visited uh dr henry wilson at three gordon square who was actually elsie's original doctor he'd only treated us try twice said she was healthy uh and often had late periods but he wouldn't sign off the papers as uh, uh that it was a perfectly normal death as he'd never seen her and she was already dead what else are we doing what else have we got up to the arrest uh, yes while palmer was giving his statement to the police it became apparent that mrs goldsmith has died resulting from an illegal act and that palmer had to accompany the police to scotland yard first he went to fine street police station and palmer was charged with her murder initially it was murder um, uh, in the back of the cab to the police station he said all I can say is not guilty he kept doing this though. even at, even at the trial as well he, he kept saying he was not guilty uh, he was taken to Vine Street Police Station which is C Division Vine Street Police Station is literally between uh, it's just off Piccadilly Circus it's it's on a street really called Air Street it's kind of hidden away it's not there anymore it doesn't exist but uh, Vine Street Police Station used to be tucked away oh, yeah. the house was searched uh, they found that he had a bone white enema nozzle uh, another one a black one with a black extension tube uh, these were kind of used for uh, uh, sluicing out the womb. Uh, they found his paying-in book, two rod-shaped electrodes, a glass measuring glass, two hot water bottles, two tins of aromatic uh, ammonia, which is a smelling salt, uh, a wide variety of different kinds of so- uh, soaps, which was used to um, uh, kind of disinfect the inside of the womb, but also to inject into the uterus as that they they worked out years ago that that was kind of a a way to kind of start the process of um uh, a miscarriage by doing uh, by you know um injecting uh oh, my brain has gone today what is going on oh to, to, to start the process of a miscarriage uh they had uh, all the ledgers were there which had uh all of his um his diary entries of who he had seen and how much money he'd made from abortions he'd been doing it for about 15 to 18 months they reckon uh or what else was in there i think that's all we really need from that one um what else is there but when the police arrived it was quite clear that he he was an abortionist uh we'll get into that shortly because we've got the autopsy records here as well Uh, oddly he was given bail which is kind of weird Uh, he asked for bail uh they did give him bail um so he wasn't in prison leading up to the uh the court case he was bailed and they took away his passport why because he's bosh and he had lots of money um obviously obviously they probably wrote somewhere that he's a man of good character because he's bosh 
Uh, the autopsy was in initially con Ugh, tea is horrible. The autopsy was initially conducted by Dr. Weir of 19 Park Road. Uh, he was a pathologist. Uh, and he concluded that death had to be fully investigated as her injuries did not match the story which uh, Charles Palmer had initially told. Because uh, he originally said it was kind of a, a nervous disorder, but it, just, it didn't make sense to them. So the autopsy was conducted by Sir Bernard Spilsbury, uh, who was called in as the burns to the, as she had burns to her body as well. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, he said there was uh, bruises to her left left of her groin. Her heart was healthy. Her organs were good and healthy. Uh, but the inner surface of her uterus was a very dark red colour. Uh, and it smelt of soap and lathered freely. Spilsbury's conclusion, Elsie was three months pregnant at the time. A solution of soap had been injected into the uterus uh, between the ovum and the wall of the uterus using a syringe and lots of pressure was used, hence there was a lot of bruising. Uh, her death was caused by shock, uh, two versions of shock. One was the electric shock and the second one was, was the injection of soap for the purpose of procuring an abortion. Uh, he said death would have occurred within minutes. Oh, what else we got? Uh, cause of death was uh, syncope, uh, temporary loss of consciousness, consciousness, consciousness uh, usually relating to insufficient blood flow to the brain, uh, which makes sense. Uh, she would have uh, gone unconscious because of the uh, ele uh, electric shock. Brain has just gone today. Uh, it most often occurs when blood pressure is too low, which is hypertension. And the heart and the heart doesn't pump enough oxygen to the brain. Doctor Spilsbury did an examination of Elsie. The uterus was enlarged. Um, he noticed an abrasion inside the back of the uterus that would have been from the syringe. Uh, the inner surface, as mentioned, was red. Uh, a large yellow body. The corpus latinum. Don't know what that means. Uh, a hormone, secre ah, a hormone secreting structure that develops in an ovary after the ovum has been discharged but degenerates a few days unless a pregnancy has begun uh, was in the left ovary. Uh, the ovum contained a fetus three inches long with an umbilical cord attached. So she definitely was pregnant. Uh, there was... Initially, before this went to trial, obviously this went to a uh, uh, coroner's court. Um, Ingleby Oddy, uh, who was the, the uh, coroner for Westminster, he looked over that. Uh, they were the ones who decided, yes, there was quite clearly some kind of malpractice going on here, some kind of illegal abortion. Um, so it had to go to criminal trial, which is why it went to the Old Bailey. Um, but he received an anonymous letter, never explained who it was from but it said jackson palmer who then lived at st james's place is actually st james's row but i'll forgive them for that uh st james's row uh back of clarence house right at the back of uh, uh prince charles's place so that's you know you can tell how posh it was um uh procured an abortion uh i know it's not prince charles's main 
area because that's Highgrove. But he hangs out there just just in case someone just in case someone right now is literally going. I'm going to go on my email and I'm going to give Michael a one star review because I heard him say that that was Prince Charles's house and it's not Prince Charles's house as we know he lives in Highgrove. It's like no, but you know, Clarence House is where where he hangs out sometimes. I don't know. I don't care. I don't care about the royals anyway. Anyway, uh, Jack. Jackson Palmer, who then lived, this is what the letter said, Jackson Palmer, who then lived at St. James's Place, i.e. Rowe, procured an abortion of a patient of mine two years ago. I had previously attended her in two confinements. She aborted and I attended her. She told me that she had procured an abortion of, uh, of several of her friends. He used an electrical current and put a pole up against her uterus. He told me he had never put anything inside the uterus. Yeah, whatever. The the autopsy says different. Uh, he charged her £20 and said he had never had a failure. He said that one, one sitting was unusual, though. He claimed that his method was safe and absolutely reliable. reliable. And it was signed. Someone who signed it off as MD. We don't know who MD is at all. But there we go. Right. Uh, let's do the answers to the questions. That's annoying, that thing not coming back. The um, tractor. I literally was gunning through that last section because you could hear the tractor and its engine. And now it's not there. It's really annoying. (sighs) Okay. Uh, Answers to the questions. Okay, here we go. What was Elsie's maiden name? Of course, it wasn't Goldsmith because that was her married name. It was Folks. Uh, question two, where did Valentine Goldsmith work? He worked at the place I used to work at. Uh, he was the assistant controller for the BBC, the Broadcasting Corporation, as it was then. This is 1927, so this is around the era when it had just been established. Uh, and that was at Broadcasting House on Portland Place. And he worked directly under Lord Reith. I don't know, he wasn't Lord Reith at the time, but he would be uh, Reith. Lord, brain gone. Uh, Noisy birds. Question three. Where did Elsie and Valentine go on holiday? There were two places. One was uh, uh, the centre of Paris. It was actually the hotel called Wagwam. The Hotel Wagwam, I believe it was. And the second one, it's not mentioned in the episodes. He won't know that. And uh, the second one uh, was the French Riviera. Uh, Question four. Which mountain formed part of Elsie's sunrise when she was growing up? The answer was Mount Everest or Everest, as it should be called, because it's named after George Everest. See, don't don't message me about this because these are all things that are off the top of my head. Could be wrong, but I'm almost certain that George Everest, as people call him, who is the surveyor in and around not too far Missouri in 1827-ish see this off the top of my head could be wrong, don't email me and say oh you got it wrong, it was 26 no he's one year out I'm doing this off the top of my head uh, I believe his the pronunciation of his name was actually Everest, should we, should, we should actually call it Mount Everest, not Mount Everest but you know we all make mistakes don't we question 5 55 up Brook Street was demolished after World War 2 but what, until recently, stood in its place? 
briefly mentioned in here. It was the former U.S. Embassy, which was at the western end of uh, Grosvenor Square. Also in there, I mean, this this was mentioned in the Alexander Litvinenko episode, but also in there was the CIA's not-so-secret substation, which everybody knew about, but apparently it was a secret. Uh, Question six. Where Where was Charles Palmer born? If you said Edgbaston, you were wrong. He was born in Cork in Ireland, but he grew up in Edgbaston. Not too far away, I grew up and born, etc. Oh, damn. Oh, my energy levels has just gone. Question seven. Where did Valentine and Elsie live? The answer was 44 Gordon Square. Which is uh, uh, other side of Fitzrovia. It's actually not too far from where next week's episode is going to be. So uh, you can tune into that one. Uh, Question eight. What age were Valentine and Elsie? At the time of her death, uh, Elsie was 21 and Valentine was 41. Pedo. Pedo. Uh, question nine uh, in Missouri uh, in India uh, where Elsie was born what the British built a road the British built roads a railway and what else what else did they build it's still there today so you can, you can have a look at it online uh, the British built a five star Savoy hotel of course they did of course they did as always Turn up and build all the things that suits you and not everyone else. Classic British. Uh, Question 10, final question. Who issued Charles Jackson with a licence even though he was unqualified? The answer was, of course, London County Council. Well done, London County Council. What an absolute genius idea. Although, in that era, to to be fair to them, it was that kind of era where if you were posh and if you had money... The criteria was slim. They wouldn't really vet anyone properly. It would just be you could get a mate who was another doctor and they go, oh, doctor such and such has said this. You know, you get a doctor to do it, you get a priest to do it, you get an MP to do it. And everyone goes, oh, that's fine. They've got the connections. They must be good. But they won't vet them. They won't check them. Don't forget, it was only about 20 years ago when in this country, to get your passport renewed, you needed it on the form it clearly stated stated if you wanted it renewed it had to be signed off by a respectable member of society and in brackets it said doctor priest member of parliament that has all changed in the last couple of years i think we've uh, i think all of that has changed now we don't see those people as respectable anymore unfortunately there have been quite a few people who have sullied it for everyone else there you go i've covered myself there by saying not all mps and uh and priests and doctors are, are weirdos right there we go that's that episode hope you enjoyed that that was good that was a different one next week's episode is another different one uh next week's episode is a very current one and quite interesting and then we finish then we've got an uh one after that and then what i'm gonna do is uh i'm doing a run of four which will be called stripped these are a chance to give me a chance to catch up with because uh, obviously these episodes take so there's one a week but it takes longer than a week to do each episode so it's it's kind of I'm always running out of time and these are chances for me to to catch up so stripped uh, 
also uh, it's easier for me to do but the idea is there are also stories that wouldn't normally fit in murder mile do you know if i find that a good story for murder mile is one where i can give you a good back history and tell you all about their lives and i can really dig deep whereas sometimes there's stories where because of because you know the documents aren't in the archives and things like that um there's very little that i can tell you about the story but it's still interesting enough to turn into a story so stripped is going to be a more pared down version but it's an interesting story that i I want to tell but i can't do it in the usual way so hence i'm going to try and do stripped and see how it works uh and i think i'm going to try and edit it in a very different way than i normally would but anyway it's something different for murder mile trying to keep things different and entertaining and you know we've got mini mile we've got extra mile we've got meander mile uh all these will probably come back at some point and you've got of course you've got regular murder mile as well so that was that that's me done time to shut up time to coot is outside making noises baby coots there's little baby coots there's about five of them and they're at the they're at the fluff they've gone past the fluffy spiky stage and they're now at the mini coot stage where their their fronts aren't they're not pure black anymore they're kind of they're black but with a very very kind of silvery front they're 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 cute but not as cute as they normally are (sighs) i am knackered let's get this done i'm going to edit this uh and then we'll get this out cool hope you're all well and uh uh, have yourselves a good week stay safe be good save the nhs don't be numpties by uh breaking the rules the lockdown isn't over it's just eased it's eased gonna keep repeating that wear your gloves wear your masks stay safe stay indoors keep healthy good have yourselves a good week be good bye even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.